Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Amy Berger. Last podcast I did with her was in 2020, and that was podcast 108. Amy has a master's degree in human nutrition. She's also a certified nutrition specialist, as well as a U.S. Air Force veteran. She is also the author of many books, including a co-authored book with Dr. Eric Westman called End Your Carb Confusion. I asked Amy to join me today so that we could dive into reducing fear, worry, and anxiety related to nutrition. She specializes in keto without the crazy, keeping things sane and simple. And I think in our post-pandemic timeframe, it is a message that is woefully underrepresented. We spoke at length about the impact of food addiction and binge eating, as well as orthorexia, the role of metabolic psychiatry, which is an emerging trend in medicine, the impact of brain health and blood sugar, different types of fuel substrates, weight loss resistance, and some keys into lesser known issues that can intersect with this, the role of biohacking gadgets, the scale, and the value of food budgets. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Amy is a wealth of information. Her YouTube channel is one of my favorites. There is just so much down-to-earth messaging in her brand and in her business. Amy, it's so nice to have you back on the podcast. I've really been looking forward to reconnecting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you have a mantra that I really think of when I think of you. And you you use the mantra keto without the crazy, keeping things sane and simple. And I would imagine this is in response to the antithesis of that. But where did that stem from? Was it, you know, dogmatic principles that you felt like people were like ready to die on the sword over? What drove that methodology? Yeah, this keto without the crazy. I didn't sit down and brainstorm, you know, a catchphrase or anything. I was recording a video for my own YouTube channel at one point and it just came out and I said, oh, oh my goodness, I've got to keep that. But the reason I think it it speaks to me so much and, and I think to other people is, like you said, there's so much sensationalism in the keto world right now. And if you were brand new to this, you would think that this is like building the space shuttle or something. It's so complicated. There's so many moving parts. You know, it's a full-time job to follow a keto diet. And the truth is, no, it's actually very, very simple and straightforward, but not many people are telling you that. You wouldn't know it by getting on YouTube today or by getting on Twitter or Instagram. You would think it's like, you know, performing brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and for me, it's interesting as a clinician to kind of watch a lot of these nutritional dogmas become popular and people have great success with low carb and ketogenic diets, but it's almost like the zealots and the strongly dogmatic individuals are in many ways creating further anxiety and stress for individuals that are just trying to navigate in many ways, maybe like their first attempt at a more simplified version of what they've been doing. And by that, I mean, I always say well-meaning people don't realize that some of the things they say, like, if you, unless you do carnivore, you're going to have inflammation. Unless you do keto, you're never going to lose weight. And so it, there's a little bit of bioindividuality, but we also have to present things in a way that make them accessible and attainable and allow people to be successful with them without fear-mongering. Yeah. There's so, fear is the right word for it. There's so much fear and worry and anxiety that people have about food. And I think, in my opinion, one of the nice things about low carb or keto is, or rather should be, that you can finally lay all that aside. I mean, how many people come to keto or low carb or even paleo, whatever, you know, version of this, how many people come to that because they've already tried 
the other stuff in the past. They tried veganism or they tried counting calories and counting points. And they've already spent the last 10, 20, 50 years living in fear of food or living in fear of gaining weight or of not losing weight. And I want like I just wish I could telepathically let people know there is a way of doing things that you can relax about that. And it's like you said, it's everyone's different. It's not that you won't have to tweak and, and tinker a little bit to find what works best for you as opposed to somebody else. But for most people, the starting point of just cutting way back on carbs is going to get you so far. And I think that's really important for people to understand. And, you know, there's a program that I run and, and I explain to people that the average American is eating 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day. And if you just reduce your carbs to under a hundred, which for a lot of people is a massive shift, that that alone can be hugely impactful. And so I have people that will say, well, it should only be 30 grams of carbs a day and it should be under 50 grams of carbs a day. And and I explained that for some people, that's not attainable. Like it will never be attainable. It's And it's not something that they can then sustain. And I think we're in agreement that we want strategies that are sustainable, that are flexible, that allow people to have their lives and not feel so rigidly dogmatic about what they're doing that they can't enjoy a, a celebration or they can't go out to dinner or they're fearful of inviting guests over because they perceive that their way of, or way of eating is too restrictive, even if it isn't. And so that's why your message really resonates. And for people that follow you on Twitter, you know, you'll call out the dogmatism. You don't, you know, per se poking a finger at anyone in, in particular, but you're just like, this is not realistic. This is not sustainable. And so you know, for you kind of observing things and you're very analytical, you know, you have a wonderful blog, you have a great YouTube channel, you know, for you, what have you seen over the last several years during the pandemic in terms of people's shifting perspectives about nutrition or lack thereof? What are you hearing from your clients? Yeah, thank you for all those kind words, by the way. And, and before I get into that with the, you know, during the pandemic, what you said is so important. You know, it doesn't matter how effective any particular diet or other lifestyle change is if somebody can't actually do it. If they can't actually implement it and stick to it, it doesn't matter how well it works. So what can that person do? How far can we get them? And let's do that and not worry about, well, you should be doing X and Y on top of this. And I think we probably both feel this a shift in eating should make your life better and more enjoyable and more free, free you up to do more, not box you in and limit you. Like you said, you, you don't want to go out to a friend's house because, oh, they might have cooked something in the wrong oil or they might have. I don't know what. <laughs> so um, this is supposed to make things better, not worse and more restrictive. But it's interesting. The last couple of years, I think people have gone in one of two directions. They either use this time, and most of the world is open now, kind of like it was before, but when everything was more closed down, some people used that time to refocus, like, oh, this is great. I can't dine out as much. I'm going to cook more from home. I'm going to, you know, I could even exercise for free on my living room floor. I can do push-ups or something. And then some people, of course, went the other way. I'm so stressed out. I'm so afraid of everything. Or they may have had increased increased burden, like, oh, my mother is elderly. I have to do her grocery shopping now or order online for her. And they were sort of soothing and comforting with food or with alcohol. You know, everyone joked that all the gyms closed down, but the liquor stores were open. I have no opinion on that one way or the other. I'm a wine lover, but so it went in two different directions. But I think this was, it's a teachable moment. I hate that phrase, but you can show people that this happening in the world is not an excuse to eat junk. Like, okay, so everything shut down, therefore you have to eat cake, therefore you have to binge drink every other night. What? How does that thinking come in? You know, you can still, we all still bought groceries. You still could have cooked all your meals. You could have taken, and I'm not, that's not blaming or shaming. It's just help people see that because whether it's COVID or not, People say, well, I was doing really well, but then life happened. You know, somebody passed away or there was a divorce or you got injured somehow. And again, I'm not saying like, of course, there's reasons we turn to food for comfort, but 
we could have also not turned to food. We could have still, you know, because something is always coming at us. We have to learn how to navigate life while still just eating what we normally eat and not making some big thing about it. I think that's really important. The reframe, you know, really understanding how do we process uncomfortable feelings? This is something that really becomes the crux for each one of us. I mean, no one is perfect. There's no one listening that hasn't experienced, you know, wanting or desiring, like whether it's ice cream or chocolate or French fries or whatever it is you're drawn to when you're stressed. The understanding that at the basis of a lot of that is uncomfortable feelings that many people are not ready to process. They're not ready to deal with. And I would agree with you that you know, part of the the reframing for us in my family. So I have two teenagers and two dogs and my husband and I did a lot of walking because sometimes the only thing we could do is walk the dogs. And so the running joke was during the pandemic, what happened? All the dogs were like, stop walking us so much because you couldn't do a lot of other things. But, but I do think it's important to understand that we will always have stress, you know, that's not going away. So how do we manage and mitigate those feelings? Now, one thing that you know, I was at an event this past weekend and Dr. Tro, who we both know, was talking quite a bit about food addiction and binge eating. And I think about that. And I also think about the other side, like orthorexia, you know, people who are afraid to leave their homes because they're, you know, as you mentioned, seed oils or high fructose corn syrup or whatever they're, you know, concerned about. How do you help people navigate these waters? I mean, I fully understand and appreciate neither one of us are clinical psychologists, but more often than not, a lot of what we see when people feel like they've lost control about food is that they've got this underlying propensity for whether it's food addiction or binge eating, or they're then so overtly concerned they can't enjoy their life because they are they feel like they have to prepare everything in their house themselves, which is no way to live, to feel like you can't enjoy food as opportunity to connect with others. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We are so on the same page because I do, I, we see both extremes, right? And I think my keto without the crazy may have also come out of that because we are aligned with the kind of eating we're aligned with, whether you want to call it keto or low carb or even whole food, whatever you want to call it. Naturally, people are drawn to us who are very, very concerned about their health, about food quality, about the kinds of things they eat. And they do take it to that extreme, that that orthorexia, where it's actually, like I was saying before, keto is or low carb, it's supposed to improve your life, make it not just physically, but mentally, emotionally. And when you take it to that extreme, it's making your life worse. It's giving you all this anxiety and all this terror. And you're right, I'm not qualified to help in some of these areas. Sometimes, depending on the severity, I will refer to a mental health professional. Sometimes I just help people see like, is that how you want to live? Do you want to live in such a way that you can't go to a party at a friend's house or you can't accept a gift of food or something? You can't travel. And that the biggest thing though is helping people see that again, especially if you have metabolic syndrome or obesity or type two diabetes or PCOS, the number one most effective thing you can do is cut back on your carbohydrate intake. And that alone can go miles and miles. And like you, I work with Dr. Eric Westman. We wrote a book together. He's been doing this for 20 years in his clinic. He doesn't tell people don't eat the store-bought salad dressing. Don't eat this mayonnaise. He just talks about the carbs and they can lose a hundred pounds. They can reverse all their illnesses. And I'm not saying that's for everybody, but start there. And then if you want to pay a little more attention to the oils you use or, you know, buying from a local farm, that's great. But if you can't do all of that at once, like, like, again, the, the orthorexia thing, maybe some type of compound is a problem. Maybe it's not, you know, there are some, some people use ask people use aspartame and they have no issue. And I know that's, ah, oh, I just stepped on the third rail of health. there talking about artificial sweeteners, but you have to pick your battles. You know, how many things do you want to worry about, about your food alone? Because what about the rest of your life? How much emotional energy do you want to devote to food? I think that's such an important point. And ironically, about a month ago, and we saw this on Twitter, this study came out about non-nutritive sweeteners. And I actually discussed this study with my groups and I discussed it with my coaches and I just explained, this is just, it gives you a, huh, you know, it impacts insulin sensitivity. It impacts, you know, glucose tolerance. It impacts the gut microbiome. What does that suggest we do? 
limit. It doesn't say you can't ever use a sweetener or non-nutritive sweetener, but that's the methodology. I mean, that that's where a lot of people's brains have gone that, oh, this means all sugar is bad. All non-nutritive sweeteners are bad. And I love that you bring up, you know, Dr. Westman's work and your most recent collaboration is really an excellent resource. But I think it's all about, you know, how nuanced do you want to be? Because for some people that are eating a hyper palatable, highly processed diet that's high on refined carbohydrates, low on protein, wrong types of fats, if the first thing that they can do successfully is reduce their carbs, then that's fantastic, especially with the degree of metabolic disease that we see here in the United States. And you touched on, and I know you have a background talking quite a bit about brain health, Alzheimer's, dementia risk, cognitive improvement or not. Let's kind of pivot the conversation and and speak there because I think as I get older, I think cognitive support and thinking about brain cognition in a proactive manner is an area of focus. And I, I think it is for a lot of listeners as well. Like we may not be able to be as tangible about a lot of other things, but brain health is something we can all relate to. Yeah. And well, before I do that, I want to say just because of what, what we were talking about before, there's no right or wrong, right? There's only what works and what is successful for somebody. And if if somebody out there listening or watching is including a certain food item in their diet and they're happy, they're getting the results they want, then don't let someone scare you away from that. If they're saying, well, you shouldn't do, you know, this finger wagging, you shouldn't do that. If it's working well for you, you know, just there's really no right or wrong. There's no rules. This isn't commandments. It's your body and we're all different. Yet the brain, I think not enough airtime is given to how much the blood sugar and insulin problems affect cognition and affect the brain. We kind of know, or we take for granted that they affect the whole rest of the body, right? Like in regard to the weight gain or loss, in regard to diabetes and prediabetes, PCOS, non-alcoholic fatty liver, even skin tags, gout, all of these things. And we forget that what is that doing to the brain? Like what are all these metabolic problems doing to the brain? Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA, 
that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinkelment.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Yeah, it's a huge issue. And it's interesting. I interviewed Dr. Chris Palmer recently, and he was talking about dietary changes related to metabolic health and mental health. And, you know, for me, I think a lot of people make this presumption that their brain is in a bubble from the rest of their body and that there's no reciprocity. There's no blood brain barrier. There's no way you're having any of these issues. And so let's kind of talk about some of the disorders that are kind of common, like anxiety and depression and bipolar and schizoaffective and and things that we know there's a connection with metabolic health. There's a connection with mental health and nutrition, because I think this is significant. I think on a lot of levels as someone who's traditionally allopathic trained, the way that I learned mental health issues years ago, I think so completely differently about it. And nutrition really is the way on in many levels to improve brain metabolism and cognition, et cetera. Yeah, there's an emerging field now. They actually call it metabolic psychiatry. I think at at Stanford University, they have a website for it. You can look it up, the metabolic psychiatry. It's so fascinating that, you know, we tend to think that these things are all in our head, right? Oh, it's just because of your thoughts or something, or it's, it's a response to trauma. Sometimes that's true, but it is astounding how many mental health issues can get better when you change your diet. Sometimes that's strict keto, sometimes not, but it's Dr. Brian Lenski's out of San Diego gave a talk at a conference I was at recently, and he showed the data from a CGM in one of his patients. And this woman was having panic attacks or what she thought were panic attacks. Turns out each time she was feeling that way, it was hypoglycemia. So, and I think that is probably true of millions of people who have panic attacks or anxiety problems or that sort of like rumination. Depression in some people looks like it could be almost a depressed brain metabolism if you can get more energy to the brain. And, but that's not true for everybody. Like I know people with depression who are on, you know, keto doesn't fix everything, but I wish, and I could be wrong, but I wish, you know, that it's not already standard practice. But when you go to a psychiatrist, you know, an MD who can prescribe, I wish that before a medication was given, they should be doing an immense workup in terms of blood and biochemistry analysis. Like, are you anemic? Are you iron deficient? That could cause depression. Are you, you know, or fatigue? Do you have some imbalance somewhere that is like easily corrected with diet? You know, do you have insulin resistance? Do you have undiagnosed metabolic syndrome or diabetes? And that's affecting the fuel getting to the brain. It is so powerful and so promising. And again, it's not going to be, you know, a magical cure for everybody, but it's the side effect of changing your food is that you get to eat delicious food and feel good. Like there's no, unlike the medications that come with these long lists of scary side effects, the side effect of changing your diet is that you get to enjoy And I think that's really significant. And it's interesting when I was pivoting away from cardiology and the doctors I work with were semi-supportive of what I was doing. They're like, oh, this is the NP who thinks food is important. And the more I recognize and realize that it's one of the most important things we can do, not just for physical health, but also for our mental health. And I love that, you know, this emerging field is something that will change the trajectory of medicine in, in hugely impactful ways. Now, when we're looking at fuel substrates, so if we're looking at glucose and fatty acids and ketones, 
What is unique about ketones and the brain that can improve our mental health and mental clarity? Well, I don't know that there's anything unique to the ketones, except that in the brain, like for example, in in Alzheimer's, the problem in the brain in somebody with Alzheimer's is that the neurons are no longer taking up and using glucose properly. So I, I tell people it's like your brain is starving, like it's just a fuel shortage. And even though that brain is not taking up and using glucose, it will take up and use ketones. So you've got this fuel. I don't know that it's necessarily a better fuel. It's just an alternative fuel that the brain can use when it's not using glucose as well. I do think though the ketones, this is the simplified version, but they're like a cleaner burning fuel. They produce fewer of those reactive oxygen species and you get molecule for molecule. I think when you burn could be fatty acids, maybe not ketones, you get more ATP, you get more energy. So it's just like an even more powerful way potentially to fuel the brain. And we know, you know, Alzheimer's is, is like an end stage kind of thing. Look at all the people who have brain fog, who go on a low carb diet, and it's like somebody flipped a switch. And I don't think there's a whole lot of published research on that, but how many thousands of clients and patients and and anecdotes are there of people saying that that's definitely something they've experienced, you know, sharper thinking. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, for a lot of women, they're at reduced risk for a lot of health issues, including cognitive disparities until they go through menopause. So in your patients, do you see as they're transitioning from maybe perimenopause into menopause or men transitioning into andropause and yes, men, that does actually happen (laughs) as much as men don't like to talk about it. Do you start to notice some cognitive improvement or deficits that you're starting to observe in your client population? You know, most of the people don't have those issues yet when they come to me, but I would say most of them report sharper thinking no brain fog and like even more physical energy. Like they don't need that afternoon nap or they don't have that afternoon dip anymore. So that I think most people notice, you know, if they had an issue, some people don't have any sort of brain fog or anything, but if they do, I think they notice it getting much better. Oh yeah. And it's amazing because it's such a a fairly, and I say fairly simple, it's all relative to what your experiences are, but less carbohydrates, more energy, more improved cognition, less brain fog. I mean, that to me alone, you know, knowing that you can get through your day without a nap or needing that triple espresso with, uh, you know, a soda and a candy bar and Lord knows whatever else people are doing to try to keep themselves awake and alert while they're at work or during their personal life. Now, it's interesting. One of the most common topics that comes up in this podcast, when I ask listeners, you know, when I mention who I'm connecting with, is weight loss resistance. And I would imagine this is probably a very popular topic for you as well. When you're starting to unpack that for your clients, what are some of the common reasons why this happens? And part of why I'm asking this is that I know you have a unique lens on this. And so be interesting to talk a little bit about nutrient deficiencies and digestive function and some of the less commonly discussed reasons for weight loss resistance that we discuss on the podcast. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have a book about this. Actually, it's called The Stall Slayer. People can find it at stallslayer.com. And it's it's about breaking fat loss stalls on low carb diets. If you want me to kind of go specifically for the less common things, there's something that's very, very common, but people don't know how common it is. And that's suboptimal thyroid function. My next book, I'm actually working on my next book now. It's going to be about thyroid. It's not a keto book. It's going to be a thyroid book. And there's just way, way too many people. And it's mostly women, but men can have thyroid problems, but it's about a nine to one ratio with women being affected more than men. So many people have low thyroid and they don't know it because their doctor has been telling them for years, your thyroid's normal, it's not your thyroid, or they know they have a thyroid problem and they're taking medication, but they're on the wrong medication. And I'm I'm not a doctor, but it doesn't take, you know, an MD to read the research and to read the literature. There's way too many people taking Synthroid or level thyroxine, which is T4 only. And if your body's not converting into the T3, you are still going to have all your same hypothyroid signs and symptoms, including weight loss resistance. You will have a very hard time losing weight, even on a low carb diet, even with exercise. 
you can't keto your way out of low fat. Now, some people who start off with a thyroid problem go on a low carb keto diet and it fixes. Some people it doesn't, and you just need the, the hormone medicine. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, I myself have very stable Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, never had positive antibodies. But I myself have been on this journey for about three years trying to get the right medication because things get discontinued, whether it's the nature thyroid or armor thyroid, and then, you know, being paranoid of taking synthetic hormones, God forbid, Synthroid, Cytomel, which is the synthetic uh, T3. And perhaps that's, it's important for you to work with someone that is knowledgeable about thyroid physiology. And I think that kind of conventional approaches miss opportunities. So like you mentioned, someone gets put on Synthroid because they're hypothyroid, their body can't convert the inactive form of thyroid hormone to active. They still feel significantly hypothyroid. And that there's all these other variables that impact thyroid function. And I think a lot of people don't understand it can be adrenals. It could be substantial mitochondrial dysfunction. It could be, you know, cofactors that you're, you just don't have. And, and even if we're eating a, an organic, healthy diet, the mineral content of the soils are so depleted that we're not getting the same amount of minerals. And so there's so many things that can impact thyroid function quite significantly. Yeah. And I think for a lot of women, it's self-induced, but they didn't, they don't know it. It's years and years of calorie restricting, over-exercising, uh, too much stress. Of course, that's going to happen. Your body is doing you a favor by slowing you down, forcing you to slow down by lowering your metabolism. And again, that's none of us meant to do that to ourselves, but that's the end result after years and years of the pedal to the metal. Eventually, your body won't let you do that anymore. And I don't want to um, neglect some of the other things, but I wouldn't say this isn't uncommon, but you know, other reasons for the problems with weight loss. Some people are on medications that interfere with weight loss. And, and usually a low carb diet will still work. It's just going to be much slower or you may not lose all the weight you want to lose. But, you know, the good news is the healthier you get, you might be able to reduce or stop taking some of those medicines eventually. Um, the other one, I think people really, so if the diet is right, right, if the carbs and the fat, if all of that is right and, and the medicine's taken care of and I, I always look to that first. If somebody's really struggling to lose weight, first, I'm going to look at the diet. What exactly are you eating? You know, and then I'll look to the medicine, look to the thyroid. If everything, like these other things are lower down on my list of suspects of, of what's a problem, sleep. I mm -hmm. really do think when you don't sleep enough and ask me how I know everybody, you know, when you have poor sleep or you don't respect your body's need for sleep, that does interfere because it actually alters your hunger and appetite hormones. It alters your insulin sensitivity the next day. If you have poor sleep once in a while is fine. But if we're talking like every night for months or years on end, you know, we all have a bad night once in a while, but I still think you can get around that if everything else is like on point, the diet, everything else. But the more things that are not, you know, really hitting the mark, then they're all going to come together to make it harder. No, I agree. And I, I think sleep is just so foundational to our health. And certainly, I also think about stress, you know, you mentioned the yo-yo dieting, the over-exercising, I would throw in over-fasting, I call it the triad, because... As an example, I have a, a group that I run for a couple of times a year, and these are women that are new to fasting and we're kind of walking them through this process. And one of the questions was, I consume 900 calories a day. I can't lose weight. Why is this the case? And so trying to have to having the conversation about hormetic stress and hormesis, and if your body perceives you're under a lot of stress already, and then you're adding in, it's like gasoline, like adding in the fasting and the over-exercising, now I'm going to restrict my food intake. And I think a lot of people just don't realize that, you know, this intrinsic desire to lose weight can sometimes get us derailed from doing the work. Like I do believe fervently, we have to get healthy to lose weight, that that's important. That's part of the process. It's not just, I'm not a fan of SECO, but like calories in calories out, it's all the law of thermodynamics. I'm like, our bodies are far more sophisticated than that. Do you see a lot of 
men and women that kind of assume that if a little bit of fasting is good, more is better. If a little bit of carbohydrate restriction is good, more is better. If a little bit of exercise is good, more is better. That kind of methodology and that mindset that can be very destructive. I see that all the time, <laughs> but I, you can understand it, right? In this society, we're so obsessed with weight. We're so obsessed with size and some we're so desperate to lose weight. We are literally like, like some people that's been their goal in life, their whole life. I just want to be thin again. Ask me how I know how many years did I spend feeling that way? My whole goal in life was to just lose weight or fit into a size six or whatever it was. I understand the desperation, but yes, sometimes going too much will work against you. You know, that over-exercising, the not respecting your need for rest, under-fueling, you know, again, you can do anything if everything is properly managed. If you want to exercise a ton, great, but you better be giving your body enough calories, enough food to sustain you and enough downtime, enough rest to sustain that. You can't just push and push and push. And I was listening to someone else recently who was saying that she was exercising a lot. And at one point she was burning out and she said, you know, I think today it's healthier for me to take a nap than it is to go work out. So, like you should sometimes you are better off prioritizing the rest than the workout. You're, I don't care if it means you end the streak of X's on your calendar. You're better off skipping the workout that day and go to sleep or go for a walk, you know, in the fresh air. If some people consider that exercise, but let's say you were supposed to do some heavy hitting, intense, crazy thing. Let's say instead you go for a walk or, you know, something like that. That's, and it's, I think, we are so conditioned more is better, harder is better, faster is better. And like, it's not always, sometimes you do need to step back and slow down. We feel guilty when we do, right? We feel like I shouldn't be do, I should be working out. I should be, says who? No, I think that's an important distinction. And where do you think all of this stems from? Do you think it's, you know, the influence obviously now of social media, but you and I, that came after, but do you think that starts at home with families, conversations we have with our loved ones? Is it social pressure? Where do you think that stems from, that desire to, you know, be a certain size, you know, step on the scale and have you effortlessly lose weight without, you know, really making an effort? Where do you think that comes from? I have no idea. In some people, it's the family. There was a lot of pressure to look a certain way or in for some people, I think it is just being steeped in the culture. You know, I was born in 78, so you know, even before then, I guess there was Twiggy or whoever, but like growing up, seeing those kinds of magazines, all these women's fashion magazines, and everybody is, you know, thin as a rail. I don't know. I think it's different for everyone because my family at least never put any pressure. Thank good. I mean, I put so much pressure on myself to be thin and to lose weight. I don't know how much worse it would have been if my mother was breathing down. Now my mother was heavy, so she never... I think she was careful not to say anything to my sister and I when we grew up, but I think it's different. It probably comes from different sources for a lot of different people. It is destructive. This is what sets people up for a lifetime of yo-yoing or restricting or, you know, how many women have we both, and men are not immune, but it's more common in women. How many people have we worked with where they dismiss every, well, you know, I'm a PhD or I'm a college graduate and I'm a great lawyer. I'm a great doctor, I'm a great plumber, whatever, but nothing matters. And I'm a giant failure because I'm heavy, right? I'm a great mom. I'm a great wife. I'm a great this, but no, I'm a mess because whatever I'm obese. Like this controls people. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra colostrum. And the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, 
fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. No, it definitely does. And I asked the question because I've just been observing behavior on social media as of late. I have boys but I also have nieces and I just wonder what this generation is going to grow up thinking is normal with there's a, you know, heavily filtered, heavily photoshopped photos. Uh, you and I grew up with, you know, periodicals and magazines and newspapers when people would, you know, didn't have access way before the precedent of the internet access. And so it makes me wonder what are those outside exterior influences? And I agree with you. It's probably a myriad of reasons. I think it's probably some degree of susceptibility. There are probably some people that are more susceptible to that than others. I've had several girlfriends that have had anorexia. And so it's been interesting as a clinician to observe their behavior and how, as an example, that eating disorder is always at bay. I mean, it's always around, it's never gone away. And how they've kind of navigated growing up, having children, you know, investigating their own relationship with food as an adult. And and so it's not something that ever really goes away. So I, I can just imagine. Now, you've kind of alluded to on social media about gadgets, you know, a lot of the, the biohackers and gadgets. And one of the things that you said that I, I loved was you can be happy without tracking your sleep score, readiness level, step counts, 
heart rate variability and ketones. And so let's unpack this because I, I fully admit so much of it is bio-individual. Like I love data, but I'm a nerd and I worked in medicine. And so I liked, I like metrics, but I acknowledge how many women I work with that it totally stresses them out, whether it's a glucometer, a CGM, a whoop band, an aura ring, et cetera. I am not opposed to any of these wearable devices and trackers, but I want people to have a healthy relationship with them. And I want people to understand how to interpret what they see. Like I've joked, except it's not really a joke. You should have to sit through a five-hour biochemistry lecture before you are allowed to wear a CGM or before you're allowed to measure your blood ketones. Like you should understand how to interpret the numbers based on your food, your activity level. Are you sick that day? Are you under the weather? All of these things can affect some of these glucose and ketone dynamics. And, th and that's just one example. I mean, you said the aura ring or the these heart rate monitors, they're all useful. They can all definitely provide educational feedback, but if it, and if somebody's capable of using that as educational feedback to guide a behavior changer, like, ooh, I thought I was okay eating this certain food. Ooh, clearly I'm not. It made my sugar jump, you know, 80 points. Like, no more of that for me. But if you're going to use it as a judge and jury and as a way to punish yourself, like, oh, oh my God, I only got 12,000 steps today, or I only, I don't know. I have a friend who, has been wearing the aura ring for years. And I, I have an aura ring myself. I'm not bad mouthing the ring, but here's the behavior pattern. He's been wearing it for years. He knows his patterns. You know, he knows when he wakes up what the ring is going to tell him, how he feels. And he said this to me once. He said, I don't even have to look at it anymore. I already know. And I said, why are you still wearing the ring? He already knows. He knows based on how he feels, how his sleep was. What does he need the ring to tell him? Well, you got X minutes of REM sleep and X minutes of deep sleep. And I have used the or, like I said, I have one. Sometimes I wake up and I feel great and I look and my sleep was terrible. And then the opposite, supposedly I had really good sleep last night. I feel like garbage. So we don't want to put too much stock. Like, the danger of some of these devices is that we ignore how we actually feel and we look at the number. It's just, again, I think they're useful. I'm not opposed to them. I want people to have a healthy relationship. It's like that the scale is a whole separate one to step on the scale every day. It's fine if you want to weigh yourself every day. But you can't have that number determine your self-worth for the day. Oh, I'm up a pound. Therefore, I'm a failure. I don't deserve happiness. I'm unlovable. Or you're down a pound. Oh, no! this stuff that is so much more difficult to help people with than the food. I can give anybody a food list. Here's what to eat. See you next time. This stuff is the hard part, I think. Yeah, no. And it, it's ironic because my next question was about the scale. You know, what are your thoughts on the scale? I think that for a lot of people, it's this retraining their mindset around whatever their focus is. Like I have had women come to me that say, I want to weigh what I weighed at 18. And I'm like, great. That's fantastic. Is that realistic? Like, is it realistic? Because probably back then you didn't eat all that healthy. <laughs> and at this stage of life, that wouldn't serve you. Or people understanding that throughout their menstrual cycle, they may gain three to five pounds just based on fluid shifts and you know, what did you eat the day before? If you ate a very carbohydrate laden meal, you probably, it probably will show on the scale. So I think it's this kind of retraining the relationship. Are you using the scale as a metric? Like you're going to weigh yourself once a week. I think that's probably more helpful than living and dying by the scale. Cause that number, I always say the scale is a liar. It really, I mean, that's the way that I think about it, that if we acknowledge that it doesn't really show us the full clinical picture then that's much healthier than, as you said, people that, you know, they've lost three pounds, they're thrilled, they've gained two pounds, they're miserable for the whole day. That sets the tone and their mood for the entire day. Well, you just said the most important thing, which is the number on the scale doesn't give you the full picture. That is, I have to like reprogram people about this all the time. That is your total body weight. That does not tell you how much body fat you have on your body. That is the total of everything. It's the water, it's the bone, it's the organs, it's the muscle mass. Oh, and also the fat. 
So, and, and like you said, not even during the menstrual cycle, for any other reason, the total weight can be up or down two to three pounds. And Dr. Stephen Finney and Jeff Volick have written about this. This is like not up for debate. The body just normally fluctuates. I know when it's humid out, I retain water because I have rings that fall off me. They're so loose. And when it's humid out, I can barely even fit them on. My fingers are like swollen sausages. And people have to just understand that the fluctuation is normal and it has nothing to do with you gaining or losing fat from day to day. And I think, like you said, weighing once a week is fine. I think weighing every day is fine if, again, you don't let it ruin you for the day. And I think what I like to do, if, if I don't want people to weigh every day, but if that's what they're going to do, record it every day, but then look at the weekly running average. So it, it's as if you're weighing yourself once a week. Look like So the trend, is it trending downward over time? The little, because I always, it's a squiggly line, right? You're, you're going to have, even when you're doing everything right, there's going to be times where the weight stays the same or you're up a pound or two, then it's down, you stay the same, it's down again, it's up. It's a squiggly line as long as over the long term, the squiggle's going downward. And the other thing, nobody believes me until it happens to them personally. And you probably see this all the time too. In women, especially again, sometimes in men, mostly in women, you can lose a size Without the scale changing at all, just the way your body is changing and shifting, you can get smaller even though your weight either hasn't changed or maybe it's changed a lot less. And this happens all the time. And again, nobody believes me until they experience it for themselves. No, it's absolutely true that those body composition shifts as opposed to weight loss can be significant and profound. What are your thoughts on budgeting? But budgeting for food. So meaning... This is a question that came up for multiple people. You know, they're concerned that if they start eating a more nutrient dense whole food diet, it's going to be expensive. Are there tips that you make, suggestions that you make for your clients that would be of benefit? I think a lot of this stems around protein. I think that is a concern that, you know, eating a more higher animal protein diet, that that is cost prohibitive. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think people have to get creative. Yeah, I think depending on, where you want to get your food from, local farm, co-op, health food store versus the regular grocery store, you can absolutely eat this way without, you know, taking a second or third mortgage on your home. <laughs> Think about all the things you're not going to buy anymore. You're not getting out some of this stuff is cheap, but you're not going to be buying pasta and rice and potatoes and junk, you know, potato chips and beer and like all this other stuff that you're not going to be buying. And so you're going to have that extra money or that same amount of money to spend on the other stuff. And it's not rocket science, you know, shop the sales. If ground beef is on sale, pork chops are on sale, chicken thighs are on stock up, fill your freezer. For those who are not doing a carnivore diet, if you're doing more low carb or keto, that, you know, broccoli at the store I shop at is usually $1.48 a pound zucchini and yellow squash when they're on sale, I don't know, 79 cents a pound, 99 cents a pound. This is dirt cheap. They're practically giving it away. And I just think it's not as big a deal as people think it is. A protein is a lot more expensive these days. That is the prices have definitely gone up, but you can still catch things on sale. You know, don't eat filet mignon, eat ground beef, <laughs> you know, eat pork chops instead of, I don't know what, scallops and shrimp. I just think that's the way to do it is not to um, like all the stuff you're not buying. And then this is only true for some people if they had an illness. How much are you going to save on all the co-pays to the doctors and all the medication and the procedures and stuff that you might not need anymore? But I just think what understanding that some people are very, very budget constrained. Most of us have money for the things that we value. We really do. Maybe you get that fancy schmancy $6 coffee drink less often and you put that money toward food, or maybe you go out one time less a month. So I just really, most of us have money for the things that we really want to prioritize. That's such a good point. And, and certainly one that I think for a lot of individuals, it's recognizing a lot of our personal day-to-day -day decisions impact our grocery budgets far more than we realize now, one thing I wanted to touch on before we end our conversation today was 
I had kind of touched on nutrient deficiencies. I had a guest recently and, and we did talk about this at great length, but one of the things that when I was prepping for this, that I thought you did a particularly good job on was talking about how certain nutrients are really important for mitochondrial health. And my listeners are certainly very knowledgeable about the mitochondria and in particular things like carnitine and the B vitamins and magnesium. What do they do for the health of our mitochondria? And so remember, these are the powerhouses of our cells. It's really important. It's also important to understand, like, as we get older, we start, we're much more prone to dysfunctional mitochondria. That's why fasting in particular can be helpful for, you know, with just mitophagy, autophagy, getting rid of these disease disordered cells, but these nutrients in particular, what are some of the benefits for the mitochondria? Well, so they are the powerhouses of the cell. They are where we generate the vast majority of energy. Some, some energy can be generated outside the mitochondria for all you, you know, biochem geeks out there. Like we know it's not all of the mitochondria, <laughs> but um, in that electron transport chain, the process that literally converts these chemicals into the ATP energy, we need the B vitamins. We need iron. We need vitamin C. There's a I think manganese is the mitochondrial superoxide dismutase, like they're, they help with antioxidants. They help literally transport the electrons through the mitochondria that generates the energy. Like literally, if you looked at a diagram, these vitamins and minerals are essential components of that process, like in, or, in order for all of that to happen. So why do we think one of the biggest hallmarks of simply being unwell is fatigue? You literally are not producing enough energy, right? The B vitamins, especially iron deficiency, anemia is a big thing for fatigue. We just are literally at the cellular level, not generating enough energy. And it's interesting to me because magnesium is one of these things that people think about for sleep and they think about it for, you know, blood sugar support. And yet it's interesting if you look at a cellular level, what it's actually doing, how it's contributing to, you know, these biochemical processes. And yes, the biochemists who are listening, we're aware of all these other contributors, but we're trying to make the information relatable to the average individual who didn't go through pre-med classes in college and, and graduate school. But it's interesting to me how it's an endless amount of contributions for these cofactors. It's not just for thyroid. It's not just to help with the mitochondria. There's so many cellular processes that go on and we really do genuinely need to be either getting these from food or getting them from supplementation. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because the human body is so robust that with as many people as are sick or have compromised health, it's amazing that we're all not walking around falling straight down with how things are today. But I also think it gives people hope to think like, oh my gosh, I have to have all these nutrients and do all these things. It's actually pretty simple to get the right things and avoid the things that get in the way. And the human body is so resilient that you start making those shifts, you start getting what you need and getting rid of the stuff that's standing in the way. And it is so remarkable how much you can improve. And we've both seen this all the time. People that are so far into the disease path, whatever it may be, diabetes, you know, PCOS, all kinds of fatty liver, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and they can feel so much better. Now, sometimes it takes a while for things to kick in, but I mean, we should just feel so lucky that we are able to come back from things. I mean, that's one of the most hopeful things, I think, is that how far you can be and still actually make such a huge improvement. And we see it all the time. Well, it's really exciting. And I'm grateful that we had an opportunity to meet in person this summer and for all your con contributions and your voice of reason and sometimes an insane uh, social media space. Please let listeners know how to connect with you, how to connect with your blog. You've got all these wonderful books. We'll definitely have to keep our eyes out for your upcoming book on thyroid function, which will be really exciting. And Stall Slayer. I was not aware of that one. We'll have to make sure we link all these things up so people can access this information. 
Yeah, thank you. My website needs an overhaul, but it's tuitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T nutrition.com. But there is also stallslayer.com. And if um, I do consultations, so people can find me there. There's a button that says work with me. And uh, my YouTube channel is also called Tuit Nutrition. And that's my handle on Twitter. And um, I do still work with Dr. Westman at his company where we, we do online courses about keto. We also have stuff about cholesterol and food addiction. And that's at a, that's a very long name, adaptyourlifeacademy.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for your time today. I know this will be an invaluable resource and uh, podcast for listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.